Sometimes overconfidence is a dangerous thing. An army lets down its guard and is conquered while sleeping. Number one seed basketball team underestimates the number 16 seed and they're out in the first round of March Madness. A zebra casually drinks from a river unaware of the crocodile lurking just beneath the surface. A husband attempts to assemble an Ikea crib without reading the instructions. Overconfidence is a dangerous thing. This morning in our sermon text, Christians are warned of the danger of overconfidence. Spiritual overconfidence is when Christians like me and you feel confident in our ability to handle temptation without falling into sin. Paul gives a strong warning. He says, quote, let anyone who thinks that he stand take heed lest he fall. Friends, we think we stand when we feel like we have reached a, a really good place of spiritual maturity. We think we stand when we think to ourselves, I can handle this. We think we stand when we stop being on guard constantly against our enemy. We think we stand when we believe that because of God's grace, our sin won't have serious consequences. The Christians in Corinth were facing the devastating dangers of overconfidence. They thought they were mature enough to handle the temptations to sin without falling. So Paul reminds them of what happened to their ancestors, the people of Israel in the wilderness. And as we study God's word this morning, my prayer is that we will all heed this warning and flee every sin that tempts us. So please take your copy of God's word, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to be studying the first 14 verses today. First Corinthians 10, verse 1 through 14, this is God's word. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. 
Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Verse 6, Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the ends of the ages has come. Verse 12, Therefore, Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. That's God's word. So this portion of Paul's letter to the Corinthians in A.D. 54 is a warning about participation in idolatry. As we've explained a number of times over the past couple of weeks, Part of the local scene there in ancient Corinth were various events all year round, like festivals sponsored by the local temples in honor of their gods. And the Christians at Corinth thought that they had the freedom to participate in these activities because, after all, idols are nothing. Those gods are false. It's... It's nothing but food. It's just meat. And it's food and fun for the whole family. Besides, we're mature enough to handle this. This won't affect us. We won't be tempted with actual idolatry in it. Paul says, listen, friends, you are in dangerous territory and you don't even know it. This is sin, and it will bring God's judgment on you. In other words, friends, there are a lot of gray areas in the Christian life. But idol food? It's not one of them. So in chapter 8, 9, and 10, Paul explains why they should not be involved in eating food offered to idols or going to these temple festivals in honor of their gods. 
and he approaches it from five different angles. We've spent five sermons on them. Well, actually, we're in our third sermon out of five. This was such an important issue, not just there in Corinth, but all over the ancient world at that time. If you'll remember, in chapter 8, he said, Consider your weaker brothers. Love your weaker brothers more than what you consider to be your freedom. And then last week in chapter 9, he said, consider our gospel mission. Lay aside what you consider to be your freedom for the sake of the gospel mission. Now this week at the beginning of chapter 10, he's going to tell us to consider the temptations to sin. In other words, be careful that your freedom doesn't lead you to sin. And then two more sections in chapter 10, he makes two more points in the next two weeks. Next week, he'll tell us to consider religious associations and, and be sure that your freedom doesn't associate you with false religions. That's exactly what was happening. They were being associated with the false religion of that temple, and it was confusing the gospel of Christ. And then finally, his fifth point is consider the circumstances, because there are some times when you could eat food offered to idols, meat offered to idols, and that would be when you don't know that it's been meat offered to idols. And so consider the circumstances, govern your freedom by the circumstances, by the good of others and the glory of God. So today, we're actually on point number three there, out of, pi, out of Paul's five-point sermon here in chapter 8, 9, and 10. And today, as you could probably tell from my reading, it was a warning. Paul warns the church at Corinth, be careful that your freedom doesn't lead to sin. And his warning is stated succinctly in verse 12. If you underline in your Bibles, I would encourage you to underline verse 12 as the key to this particular point. Verse 12, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed. Do you hear the warning? Take heed. Hadn't happened yet, but you're in dangerous territory. You're, you're the zebra, casually drinking. You're the army at sleep. Uh, you're, you're the number one seed taking the number 16 seed lightly. You're in dangerous. Take heed lest you fall. Notice that that warning in verse 12 has two parts. Do you see them? Part number one. Let, he, let anyone who thinks that he stands. They obviously think they stand. They think they are secure and mature. Part number two, take heed, you're about to fall. The warning part. Well, I want you to notice that that two-part division is actually how Paul structures his text. Part one in verse one through four, he shows us that God's people Israel all took their took their position, the graces of God for granted. They thought they stood. 
They all experienced God's covenant grace. But then look at the end of verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And so, in verse 6 through 11, Paul gives them examples of God's judgment against the sin of his covenant people. That was God's people in the wilderness. They were sinning, and God judged them. Those are God's people in Corinth. If you sin, God's going to judge you. Friends, if you're one of God's people here in Winchester, Virginia, and you enter into sin, you can expect the judgment of God just like on Israel, just like on Corinth. And so in verse 12 through 14, then Paul encourages the Corinthian Christians about what they should do when they're tempted with sin. So warning, you're in danger of falling into sin, and it's got many negative consequences. Chapter 8, your sin's harmful to your weaker brothers. Chapter 9, it's harmful to the mission of the gospel. Chapter 10, you're harming your own spiritual health because it's going to bring God's judgment on you. Judgment on me? But I'm a Christian. I'm one of God's people. Ah, there it is. Overconfidence. So let's take a look at the danger of overconfidence in verse 1 through 5. Verse 1 through 5, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. They they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. That rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. The danger of overconfidence, verse 1 through 5. Paul gives the example of their ancestors, our ancestors in the faith. Israel, they had that same mentality. They thought they were just fine because we're God's people. They thought they could play around with sin and be safe from God's judgment because they're God's people. But they were wrong. How do we know that? Because we see 40 years worth of God's people playing around with sin, and what did God do to every last one of them, all except for two, Joshua and Caleb? They did not enter into the promised land. God overthrew them, judged them because of their sin. Notice that this is the fundamental problem at the heart of every issue in Corinth. The Corinthian Christians had a false sense 
about spirituality. And so Paul is writing so that they understand that true spirituality is not arrogant. It's humble, like the cross of Christ. Notice here in verse 1 through 5, the emphasis on all, all, all. Did you know that? Five different times. All of God's people experienced the grace of God to them. They were all part of God's covenant people. All of them. (laughs) Actually, this is one of the most famous um, examples of Christ-centered expository preaching in the New Testament. Did you notice what Paul is doing here? He's, He's going down through Exodus, and he is showing how the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And he shows how that the people of God back then uh, all experience God's grace and that he takes every one of those things and he links it to Jesus Christ. In fact, verse 1 through 2, he he talks about uh, Israel in the wilderness as if it was baptism. And then verse 3 and 4, he talks about Israel in the wilderness as if they were experiencing the Lord's Supper. Do you see that? In verse 1 and 2, they were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They were surrounded under the cloud, around in the sea, baptized into Moses, just like we're baptized into Christ. And then verse 3 and 4, they ate the same spiritual food and drank the drink. There's the, the bread and the cup. And that spiritual walk, rock, strangely enough, followed them. That's a really interesting phrase there. And that that rock is Christ. You know what he just did? He just said Exodus 13, Exodus 14, Exodus 15, Exodus 17, and preached a four-point expository sermon that has all of its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. His point is that all of Israel, experienced God's saving deliverance out of Egypt under their head, their leader, Moses. They all experienced the grace of God. But, verse 5, because of their flagrant sin, they did not reach the final goal of the promised land. Now, all of this, in a physical sense, with physical people. They were God's covenant people. They were saved. Moses was one of these people who, because of his sin, experienced the judgment of God and was not allowed into the physical promised land. Only Joshua and Caleb In a spiritual sense, this is given to us as an example of the danger of overconfidence. And so then in verse 6 through 11, Paul takes it and presses it onto both the Corinthian situation and mine and your everyday battle with our temptations and sin. Verse 6 and 11, he gives examples of God's judgment 
against sin. Look at verse 6. Now these things took place as examples for us so that we might not, key phrase, desire evil as they did. Verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. And in between 6 and 11, 7 through 10, Paul gives four examples of how Israel desired evil and was judged by God for it. The people of God just delivered. Imagine what they experienced. Seeing the ten plagues, coming out of Egypt. They didn't see the Red Sea parting on a movie screen with Charlton Heston. They saw the real Moses. (laughs) They were there. They walked through on dry land. And when they got into the wilderness, they still desired evil. They still sinned. Four ways. Number one, verse seven, idolatry. Well, Paul starts off with the very ones that the Corinthians are dealing with, doesn't he? He said, your fathers, they played around with idolatry just like you are. Verse 7, do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. What were the Corinthians doing? They were sitting down to eat and drink, and they were rising up to play. What were the Israelites in the wilderness doing? Well, this sitting down to eat and drink and rising up to play is the account of Exodus chapter 32 where Israel is at the base of Mount Sinai and Moses is on the mountain with God. You remember that whole scene and what was happening down below as as Moses was up here receiving uh, the revelation of God? The people were sitting down to eat and drink and rising up to play and they were worshiping a golden calf under the leadership of their priests. The play was likely cultic, idolatrous feasts and activities, just like Corinth was dealing with all over the Greco-Roman world at that time. And what happened? The Lord sent a plague on the people of Israel because of their idolatry. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. Why? Because you will receive the judgment of God for your sin. Even the people of, even the covenant people of God will be judged for their sin. Number two, verse eight. Sexual immorality. How many times have we read and discussed sexual immorality in the 20-some sermons in 1 Corinthians? 
so many times that many of the parents are like putting their hands over their kids' ears. It was a big deal in Corinth. Friends, it was a big deal for the people of Israel in the wilderness. And it's a big deal for us today. Verse 8, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And what? 23,000 fell in a single day. What's his point? You mess around with sexual immorality and God will judge your sin. This account is from Numbers chapter 25. You can go back and read it later. But the men of Israel had sexual relationships with the women of Moab. And guess what the women of Moab did? They enticed the men of Israel to make sacrifices to Baal, their God. There it is one more time, immorality and idolatry going hand in hand. So Paul grabs that example from the people of God in the wilderness, and he said this is the same thing that's going on in Corinth. What happened? God sent a plague and 23,000 fell in a single day. That's some kind of fierce judgment. You know why? Because God hates sin. Number three, examples. The third example of God's judgment against sin from the people of Israel. Verse nine, they tested God. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. When did they put Christ to the test? Well, here's another uh, Christ fulfillment of the typology of the Old Testament. They put God to the test. Jesus is God. They put Christ to the test, and they did it in Numbers 21. You remember the famous story about how Israel lacked food, and they got impatient with God, and so they, quote, spoke against God and his leader Moses, and they said things like, why have you brought us out of Egypt so that we can die in the wilderness? We hate this manna that you've provided for us. Psalm 78 verse 18 says it this way. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food that they craved. They didn't just despise what God gave them. They demanded the food that they craved. What's going on in Corinth right now? But we just want to go to these local festivals. We want to have the food. What's the big deal? Paul's saying, it's idolatry. And God will judge you for it, friends. You can't go there. Don't let what you consider to be your freedom lead you into sin. What happened to the children of Israel? What's the example? God sent serpents and, quote, many of the people died. And that's that famous story where after the complaining, God sent the serpents in, they bit the people, they began to die, and then Moses erected the bronze serpent. That is a foreshadowing of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said to all of the people, look and live. And so, 
We look not at a bronze serpent on a pole. We look at the Lord Jesus Christ who was lifted up to take away the curse of our own sin, our detesting what God has provided and demanding what we want. Testing God, they did. Example number four, verse 10, they grumbled. Oh, that's just a little thing, though. (laughs) Paul doesn't think so. The Bible doesn't think so. God certainly didn't think so. They grumbled throughout the wilderness account. Which one exactly is he talking about here? Not sure. There's so much grumbling going on in the wilderness. Pick one. Numbers 11, Numbers 14. But probably Paul is recalling Psalm chapter 106 here because it has all of the same kinds of words. You can go back and read it later, especially the section of Psalm 106, which is our verse 25 through about 28. They murmured in their tents, and they didn't obey the voice of the Lord. Therefore, he raised his hand and swore to them that he would make them fall in the wilderness. Psalm 106, 25 and 26. Israel complained. You know what they said exactly? They longed to return to Egypt. What an affront to God who had delivered them from 400 years of captivity. We want to go back. We liked it better being slaves in Egypt than trusting you. That's at the heart of all of our grumbling. We think it's a little sin, but it's huge with God. It's a a complaint-based lifestyle instead of a thank-based lifestyle, says Paul Tripp. So Paul uses these four examples to make one point. God's people who experience God's grace cannot enter into sin and expect to be safe and secure from judgment. Here's four examples of how you, Christian, through your forefathers in the wilderness, through your forefathers in ancient Corinth, and today, here's four examples, four warnings that say, you can't play around with sin. You're not safe from the judgment of sin. So when we think about our own lives, we, we can look and, and examine ourselves for idolatry in our own heart. Now, we may not bow down to a golden calf, or we might, may not go to the temple of, of Zeus, but we certainly serve a god, and that god usually begins with a capital I, doesn't it? Me. It's a self-indulgent lifestyle. Individualism. Success, materialism, living for my kids' status. We certainly are tempted with sexual immorality and in dating relationships outside of marriage, pornography. Paul is warning us you cannot play around with sin. God will judge that sin. We can't test God. It 
testing God is not trusting God to provide and then detesting what he does provide. It's, it's just that basic fundamental life of discontentment, which then produces grumbling. Discontentment in the heart, grumbling from the mouth may seem like a little sin, but it, at its core, has roots in unbelief, doesn't it? We can see that. Examples of God's judgment against sin. And so, rather than just leaving us feeling the weight of all of our sin and the temptation in our wilderness here in 2023, Winchester, Virginia. Paul gives us some encouragement. Just like he gave them, gives them encouragement of what to do in the midst of temptation. Verse 12 through 14. Let's read that again. Therefore, because of everything I just said, therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I just want to take a moment to give you three encouragements that we should remember in the midst of every temptation directly from this text. Three encouragements in 13 and 14. Number one, remember, temptation is common to everyone. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Why is that important? Because in the middle of temptation, it's difficult. What's the word that he says there? It's overtaken us, like, like an enemy assaulting us. We know it's difficult, but it's common to man. Fulton Sheen says, you're not tempted because you're evil, but because you're human. In the middle of that temptation... The enemy is going to tell you that you're the only one dealing with this. And he's going to well up a pity party in your soul. And just remember, this is not unique. You're not the only one who has ever dealt with this temptation. We have Bible on that. Jesus did too. And I'll read that in a moment. Remember, temptation is common. To everyone. Number two, remember God is faithful. Exclamation point. God is faithful. And how does God show us his faithfulness? He will always provide a way of escape from sin. In the middle of temptation, I encourage you to remember that God is faithful. 
Because that internal monologue is going to begin to run the script that says, this temptation's too much to handle. I have no way out. I don't have any choice but to sin right now. The enemy is going to tell you that God's expecting too much. God doesn't understand. This is too much. Oh, really? Hebrews 4. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But a high priest, Jesus Christ, who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Keep reading. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When we are facing temptations, whatever it is that you are particularly tempted with, Remember, God is faithful, and he will show his faithfulness to you by providing a way of escape from this very sin. And all you must do is immediately, rather than just looking at your temptation and just looking at your sin, look to the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you look to the Lord Jesus Christ, you will always find there in him God's way of escape. God's faithful. Trust him. Don't trust your feelings at the time, but trust God. And trust is not just saying, oh God, I trust you. Please rescue me from this. No. Trust at its root is, God, I trust you. Therefore, I am going to do what you tell me to do right now instead of what my flesh is telling me to do right now. I'm going to obey you instead of my sin right now. God will never let you be tempted beyond your ability to endure the temptation. He will always, always make a way of escape. Friends, there's never a time that you can blame your sin on God. So remember, temptation is common to everyone. Remember, God is faithful, and he's going to provide a way of escape from sin. And then finally, remember, you must take the way of escape. There's something for you to do. So verse 14, what's the way of escape? Verse 14, flee from idolatry. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. The enemy is going to tell you that there's no way out. Sin is inevitable. Just like you failed a, a thousand times before. You're going to fail again. In that moment, remember that you need to take the way of escape by faith and obeying God. Wilbur Chapman said it like this, speaking about this whole thing of, of the way of escape and, and what we should do. Wilbur Chapman said, Temptation 
is the tempter looking through the keyhole into the room where you're living. Sin is you unlocking the door and making it possible for him to enter. (laughs) It's not a sin to be tempted. Temptation is when you, I mean, sin is when you open the door and let him in rather than flee and take the escape route. Luke read for us earlier, Hebrews chapter 4, and and I don't know if you noticed this particular phrase, but it's key. We use use words like faith, and we put them up here on the top shelf, and we make them all pretty and and sort of uh, gold, pristine, but faith has a definition. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 2, talking about the the, uh, people of God in, in the wilderness, For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith to those who listened. What does it mean to be united by faith? It's when God, by his grace, gives us the way of escape And we reach up with our faith and unite God's grace with our faith and we obey. Now, where does that faith come from? Oh, man, just reach down, grab your boots by the straps and just, no. Don't you know that both the grace and faith that you have is a gift from God? But your faith must be exercised in response to God's word and God's promises. He will give you a way out. You just need to take it. Uh, The Bible's full of help for us in this particular area. But the Puritans have really provided some helpful practical theology for our struggle against temptation. I, I would encourage you to read Pilgrim's Progress, where it seems like every other scene is is. Christian, the pilgrim, struggling against some form of temptation. It's that real. Friends, we're not delivered from the wilderness. We're delivered from bondage in Egypt into the wilderness, where we experience suffering and temptation all of our life until we reach the promised land, the new kingdom, where we're delivered out of the wilderness. The Christian life is the wilderness of suffering and temptation. That's what it is. And what God wants to do through us as his church is show the power of the gospel to change lives so that we're no longer slaves to sin, but we're now slaves to righteousness, happy slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we put God and the glory of his grace on display by righteous lives that resist the very appealing pleasures of sin for a season. John Bunyan, Pilgrim's Progress. Probably the one that is quintessential in Puritan theology is John Owen. He provides some enduring help through his treatise called The Mortification of Sin, published in 1656, and Of Temptation, published just a couple of years later, 1658. 
John Owen urges Christians like me and you to mortify sin. Mortify means to put to death sin. He says, quote, Do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. The choicest believers who are assuredly freed from the condemning power of sin ought to make it their business all their days to mortify the indwelling power of sin. Owen continues, set your faith on Christ for the killing of your sin. His blood is the great sovereign remedy for sin-sick souls. Live in this and you will die a conqueror. Yes, you will, through the good providence of God, live to see your lust dead at your feet. Won't that be a day? The next time you face temptation, remember, temptation is common to everyone. Part of the incarnation was Jesus coming to experience all the temptations that you and I experience. And the difference between Jesus and us is he was without sin. And we can't get away from it. Except through Christ. And then we can be delivered. Remember, God is faithful. He will always provide a way of escape from sin. But don't wait for him to zap you. Don't wait for him to pick you up and take you out of this wilderness. Remember number three, you must take the way of escape. So flee. Flee from sin. Submit yourself to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. This morning, God's word has warned every one of us of the dangers of overconfidence. I don't know what your attitude is about your own spiritual maturity, but friends, hear this very clearly today. You can't handle temptation on your own. Being a Christian, being a part of the church, does not make you safe and secure from the destructive consequences of sin. Sin always leads on the path of destruction. And obeying God always leads you on the path of life and peace. God will always be faithful in every temptation to give you a way of escape. The response of faith is to take it. And may we take it under the power of his spirit, according to his word, and following his son for his glory. Let's pray together. God, we recognize that we are slaves to sin.
we cannot do anything about the depravity of our own flesh. If it is up to us, we are absolutely helpless and hopeless. We want to thank you that by your grace, you have regenerated us. You have given us life. You have delivered us spiritually from bondage to sin, just like you delivered the people of Israel physically from slavery in Egypt. And now here we are in this wilderness where we suffer and are tempted daily. I pray that we would follow you by faith and obedience and glorify you for our own good. But even more so for your glory so that we can show the power of the gospel to change lives. So that we can show that you are more to be desired than anything sin has to offer. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the greater Moses who won the victory for us. We praise you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.